I'm speaking about the post-Christian predicament. Dr. Allen was kind to mention that I've written books. I have a major book on the parables coming out in just a matter of weeks. Parables are something of a life project. Uh, several of the books I've written are about life projects, first of all, based in the, in the tripod of historic Christian teaching. I've had the opportunity to write books on the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed in the early church. Those three units of teaching were so important, and I think they, they deserve to be so today. And uh, I've been able to write commentaries, but I, I've wanted to write this book on the parables, and I interrupted it, however, in order to, to write a book that I thought was, was needed at a particular time, The Gathering Storm, that, that came out uh, just a couple of years ago. It interrupted my parables book, which uh, is just coming out. And that's the way writing sometimes works. You realize that you have a plan, but events can require. I felt like the, the times required some attentiveness to particular issues. But there's always the book that's out there as the next one. And the next major book uh, is the topic of my lecture. It is indeed the title at this point, The Post-Christian Predicament. Now, a predicament, let's start with the end. A predicament is a context in which one finds oneself, and it comes with puzzlement. It's predicated upon certain kinds of conditions, and a predicament means that we are going to have to think carefully and think clearly in order to negotiate a particular set of circumstances. And there is no set of circumstances that represents a more dramatic challenge to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than a post-Christian condition, and, or you might say a post-Christian culture or a post-Christian civilization. Now, let's be clear, this civilization is not post-Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the sovereign, eternal Lord. But as you think about human cultures and human societies, it is clear that to greater and lesser extents, they have been influenced by Christianity. To greater and lesser extents, they have been dominated by Christianity. To greater and lesser extents, their, their multidimensional cultural expression and their life, their sense of morality, their understanding of reality, they are more and less framed by Christianity. Distinctive, as you think about human history, is the inheritance that is represented by Western civilization. And that Western civilization did not begin as a Christian project. It became a Christian project. And it began as a classical project. That trajectory of Western civilization began in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome. It was never entirely insulated. So that even in the medieval period... Uh, there was influence from the Muslim world. There was, uh, there was influence and the knowledge of other civilizations. But the reality is that that trajectory was established first in ancient Greece and then in ancient Rome. But then, of course, came the revolution of Christianity and eventually what was declared to be the Christianization of the Roman Empire. Now, interestingly, if you just fast forward, say, to our era, there are those who have argued that that is the fall of the church, that the, the Christianization of the Roman Empire represented the institutionalization of Christianity and the inevitable end to the Jesus movement. And so you have some who are trying to reclaim an Anabaptist identity or a kind of new revisionist post-Christian identity who, 
who will point back to the cultural influence of Christianity and say, that's a problem, not a gain. But as you look at the trajectory of Western civilization after the Christianization of the Roman Empire, and you track through successive epochs of development, including the emergence of, of Europe as the dominant center, and Northern Europe increasingly as the cultural dominating influence, and then you see the development of the Holy Roman Empire seeking, as you can see by its words, its name, a conscious continuity with that classical tradition and with Rome. But whereas Rome became Christianized, the Holy Roman Empire was established upon the authority of the Christian church as a union of throne and altar from the beginning. And, and so this fusion of Christianity and the culture dominated the West in such a way that these, the impulses of the West, the emotions of the West, the narratives, the historical understanding of the West, the, uh, the, the very essence of Western civilization, its codes of law, its patterns of life, these were deeply fused with the understanding of the world that was provided by biblical Christianity. Now note, I'm not saying that all the inhabitants and citizens of those nations were regenerate Christians. That's not the argument. The argument is that Christianity was the only available worldview to shape the entire civilization. And, and so it was Christian in the sense that it wasn't a Muslim civilization. It was Christian in the sense that it, it wasn't a Buddhist or a Confucian uh, civilization. It was a distinctively Christian civilization with a Christian understanding of history. And that, by the way, is just, just one little footnote. That's one of the major distinctions between the East and the West that has to do not only with the understanding of history, but the understanding of time and the definition of the present. So as you go classically into the East, you enter into a Confucian worldview in which history is a wheel. It's a cycle. Whereas based upon a biblical worldview, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, pointing all the way to an eschatology and a new heaven and a new earth, there is a past, present, and future from which we can never escape in a Christian world. And thus Western civilization is the world in which time is always set within that frame. We have to fast forward for sake of the economy of our thinking this morning, and we recognize that even at the time, say, of three-quarters through the experience of the Christian age, you could just say 1,500 or thereabouts, the world seemed to be a unitary whole in the West. Civilization as defined in the West, union of throne and altar, the Christianization of the civilization, so unquestioned at that point that there was basically no available alternative worldview. Now, there's, there's much to say about defining the modern age. We, we would have to look at many different elements from the Enlightenment and the Reformation uh, all the way to post-Enlightenment developments, but basically we would have to say this. The shortest, I think, most important definition of the shift between the pre-modern age or the medieval age and the modern age is that in the modern age, worldviews are options. For the first time uh, in human history in the West, one held to a worldview for some reason. In other words, there were, there were options. And, uh, and, and by the way, almost all of these options were intended and initially defined as efforts to replace Christianity as that dominant worldview. And so there was an intentionality here. The, 
The, uh, the, the, the left wing of the Enlightenment was not non-theological, it was anti-theological. And so here we are in the modern age, but we're well into the modern age. And so as I talk about the post-Christian predicament, I simply want to say that as you think about three conditions, think about those three conditions this way. As we think about the history of the Christian church, and in particular in the West, we have gone from a situation in which Christianity was the only available worldview option. The understanding of law, politics, meaning, life, family, marriage, the only available cosmology was a Christian cosmology. So we've gone from an epoch in which Christianity was the only intellectual option to the modern situation in which Christianity is one among other intellectual options. I'm arguing that the post-Christian condition is one in which the driving engines of the culture no longer consider Christianity an option. I hope that is clear. Christianity, the only option. Christianity, an option among others. Christianity, at least according to the intellectual elites and the driving forces of the culture, no longer an option. Increasingly, historic biblical Christianity is seen as an obstacle to human liberation and to the project of personal fulfillment and human flourishing undertaken by an increasingly secular society. Now, as we trace this, we understand that it didn't come by accident. As we think about the modern age, we understand that just to take the prophets of suspicion, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Darwin, the effort to try to provide an explicit alternative to the Christian understanding of humanity, to the cosmos, to time, to history, an explicitly non-Christian rendering of reality, including not only the external reality of empirical science, but the internal reality of the therapeutic, we understand that all of this came not by accident, not just in terms of the fact it came in one historical period in a concentrated way, but it also came by intentionality. This is not an accidental development. But still, throughout most of the years of the modern age and the centuries that we might state, would, just for the sake of the economy of time, let's just say from 1500 onward, but much of that early period, the change would have come very, very slowly. You think of 1517 and Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle door. Uh, you can see that as an early break, by the way. Uh, the historians of the left argue that that was the first demonstration of this, the kind of uh, personal uh, projection. Uh, here I stand, I can do none other, God help me. Eric Erickson said, you know, there was the protean modern man. I guarantee you Luther did not see him in that sense, himself in that sense at all. He saw himself as a man called to be obedient to Christ who was out of options. It's a very different thing. But nonetheless, let's just say we had, we had 1,500 years of a worldview solidarity, and then we've had 500 years of worldview options, and now we have reached at the end of that 500-year period, in the beginning of the 21st century, a situation in which Christianity now has a very awkward relationship to Western culture, Western civilization. You see examples of how this works. For just one illustration, as the European Union in the course of the, of the last 40 years has been defining itself, and, and again, you think about this, of course, we, we talk today in the background of the first land war uh, in Europe since World War II, uh, 
being undertaken right now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But you think about the European Union, and you understand that it really is historically the recreation of the Holy Roman Empire to a large extent. And yet the one thing they will not acknowledge is that Christianity was even a part of the European project. They, They voted on it and voted it down. So it tells you something that the modern European Union doesn't even want to admit that its sole existence is at least historically traced to the necessary influence of Christianity, because Christianity is now, to so many in those nations, an embarrassment, an embarrassment that left an awful lot of architecture for Americans to expensively come and visit. We talk about intellectual conditions. Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, has spoken of three sets of intellectual conditions. And uh, you can understand why my set has a parallel structure to his. He says that in the first intellectual condition, it's impossible not to believe. That is to say, everyone's a Christian, at least has to think it's a Christian. Again, we're not talking about regenerate belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are talking about whether or not you believe God created the heavens and the earth, and Moses came down from the mountains bearing the two stone tablets with the law of the Lord, and whether or not the Sermon on the Mount uh, and the New Testament are binding upon society. No, it was impossible not to believe. Richard Dawkins, by the way, the, uh, the infamous or famous horseman of the new atheism, uh, you know, the Charles Simonyi professor of the public understanding of science there at, uh, at Oxford, but uh, author of, of many books attacking theism and Christianity, he made the interesting observation that it was intellectually impossible to be a satisfied atheist until Darwin. In, in other words, it's, it's really frustrating to be an atheist if in order to explain the world you have to say, well, I'm an atheist, but I think the world exists because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It it took an alternative to liberate atheism. That first condition of beliefs was that it's impossible not to believe. The second condition is that it is possible not to believe. And you might call that the early modern age. And then the third condition of belief is in the late modern age where we are situated ourselves. And Charles Taylor says that for many people especially those closest to the academic life, it is now impossible to believe. So the, the impossibility has shifted from impossible not to believe to a situation which in many cultural and intellectual contexts it is now impossible to believe. There are many witnesses to this, some of them literary. Matthew Arnold in his famous poem, Dover Beach, written just over a century ago, at the, uh, might say the second half of the 19th century, about 1867, he wrote, the sea of faith was once too at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. That was 1867. And again, you're talking about Matthew Arnold, you're talking about a poet, 
very much connected to the intellectual developments of his age. When you think about Victorian England, you immediately as an evangelical go to the high watermark of, uh, of evangelicalism in Great Britain, Lord Shaftesbury, Charles Spurgeon, and others. But the reality is that the elites in Britain were already trending in a very secular direction by the end of the 19th century. And the sense of loss was massive. Alfred Lord Tennyson in his poem, Recessional, for example, written for the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria, he was already basically saying, the sun is setting. And a part of what he sensed as loss were the, the verities, the truths of the Christian faith that had established the civilization. We speak about a secularizing age, and uh, this has been a lot of my work for the last 40 years or so. Secularization is the process whereby societies liberate themselves or lose for themselves the theistic fundamentals that had explained the origins of that very society. So it's the decreasing binding authority of religion and the, the increasing absence of any religious claim is necessary for life in a society. Christianity, it is now clear, has largely been in retreat if not under assault in academic circles in the West. And not only that, the cultural creatives, the closer you get, I often talk about this as the three C's. The closer you get to a coast, the closer you get to a city, and the closer you get to a campus, the further you get from the influence of Christianity, even in the United States. And, and not just, say, in the academic culture, but in the general culture. There's a reason why, as you look at a map of, just to summarize, red and blue America, very blue coasts, very blue cities, very blue campuses. It's just a part of the reality, but the ideas come from those areas. The entertainment, the, the culture is generated from those regions and from those populations, and the future is basically forged there. Now, hold that thought. There's more to that story, but there's not less to that story. You're talking about the loss of Christianity as the grounding for morality, meaning the vision of life, the experience of time, and, and one of the big issues about which I am speaking and one of the issues that drives my thinking and concern and will be a major focus of this, this project is the shift in apologetics from metaphysics to ontology. Throughout most of my life, the big apologetic questions have been, how do we know? How can you prove? How can you be certain? How can you believe? Those are the apologetics questions that, that drove me uh, into theology and into the richness of of historic biblical Christianity as a teenager and as a young man. The big questions were, how can I know, and, and how can we claim, and how can we teach, and how can we preach? And that points to the necessity of the Christian revelation truth claim and the inerrancy and infallibility and verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. Those issues have not gone away. They will never go away until Jesus comes. But, and here... There would be voices from the past to tell us that this would be necessarily so. At some point, a crisis in epistemology becomes a crisis in ontology. And you're saying, this is a lot for the morning. <laughs> but how do you shift from, I don't believe that the text is determinant of meaning. How, how do you shift from, how can we know, to there is now 
nothing more than social construction to words like man and woman, boy and girl. This is now a war on ontology. It's a war on being. It's a war on creation. And, and you look at this and you say, well, it had to work in that direction. That, that first revolt had to come in epistemology, but now we're in a full-scale assault upon reality. And, and by the way, one of the interesting things to watch is the clash between groups such as the transgender revolutionaries and second-wave feminists, because the second-wave feminists built their entire worldview on the fact that the category female is a stable ontological category. And there is now no fun being a feminist if everyone is a woman. <laughs> and, and you look at this and you recognize this won't work. By the way, as, as I point out, and, and this has been part of the wisdom of the Christian church. This is a part of the understanding of natural law. What you get when you accept the transgender revolution is the fact that you had better have converts because you are not going to have babies. In other words, nature hasn't changed. But the revolt is now so basic as a revolt against nature. Where do we see this happening fast? Interestingly, one of the places where this is happening most quickly is Ireland. Ireland has gone from a nation that was known pervasively for its commitment to Christianity, and in, in, in the South, the greater population of Ireland, that has meant Catholic Christianity for 500 years. The reality is that Ireland has now become one of the most secular nations on earth. Church going in Ireland dropped by the end of the 20th century from 90% to 18% and has been in a free fall in the first two decades of the 21st century. The Irish church, the Catholic church, the north, of course, predominantly Protestant, the south overwhelmingly Catholic, Ireland that used to send missionaries and Catholic priests all over the world is now having to import priests from Poland and Africa in order to meet the needs pastorally of its declining population. Crawford Gribben does such good work in uh, Puritanism, has written a recent book entitled The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. And he says this, he says, quote, if current trends in public opinion continue, some of the traditional moral claims of Christianity will cease to be socially acceptable. And in the absence of robust free speech legislation, the public statement of them and those claims may no longer be permitted. Now you look at that and you recognize the inevitable collision between the moral revolution and religious liberty, but in a nation like Ireland, it is now faster than what we witness in our country, becoming something akin to criminal to articulate biblical Christianity. And there are many reasons for why this happened as fast as it happened in Ireland. But the point is that what we are witnessing, frankly, should be a shocking surprise to anyone familiar with the history of the Christian church. Dechristianization is something that happens evidently much faster than we might have imagined. It's kind of like Herb Stein's old definition of bankruptcy. It happens very, very slowly until it happens very, very fast. Hopefully, you'll know that only as a theory. The definition of post-Christian means that for significant portions of our society, and for many people active in our society, 
Christianity is thought of as something that represents the past, the past that has been transcended, the past that has been now set aside, something of an embarrassment. I can think of three writers who have given a lot of attention to this, and every one of them in greater and lessful, more and less, uh, greater and lesser, more and less useful ways. Leslie Newbigin, an Anglican, basically was one of the first to use this post-Christian designation. And uh, that happened at least in part because he had been a bishop in the Church of, of India, and then had come back to Britain, back to Europe, and what he noted was that in the period of his own lifetime, by his own personal observation, perhaps made more keen by the fact that he'd been out of that country for so long, it had effectively moved from a Christian stage to something that can only be described as a post-Christian stage. The midpoint, and then the second half of the 20th century, T.S. Eliot, the great man of letters, who, by the way, was originally from Missouri, but is uh, thought of uh, by his own intention as English. But T.S. Eliot was writing about this sense of loss, that something fundamental had happened. He had a literary eye and a great deal of theological wisdom in recognizing that the Christian age was drawing to a close. Seamus Haney, the Irish Catholic writer, also recognizing this uh, and, and referring with a sense of cultural, if not theological, loss, referring to this post-Christian age. Charles Taylor talks about the social imaginary, that is, every society operates on the basis of certain ideas that just are held by almost everyone, a certain vocabulary, certain symbols. He calls this the social imaginary, and yet for so many people in the West, and increasing numbers of people even in the United States, their social imaginary does not include anything that is distinctively or recognizably Christian. That comes as a shock to us. It comes to a shock sometimes as Christians have conversations with neighbors. It comes as a shock as Christians listen to the discourse going on around us. And Christians can make the mistake of thinking that what they are hearing are disconnected ideas. No, what they are hearing is the full evidence of the fact that many of the people to whom we talk, many of the people, indeed, the vast majority of the people producing the culture that we consume are no longer thinking about Christianity. It's no longer a part of their social imaginary. They think of Christianity when they have to, and they think of it in something of a National Geographic pattern. National Geographic uh, from the age of, of exploration and, and the age of, uh, of European colonialism and all the rest, and, and National Geographic was, uh, was very much a part of my boyhood uh, I uh, received every year for Christmas from my grandmother a subscription to National Geographic magazine from the time I was about nine. I got it only after all the naked uh, people had been cut out with a razor blade by my mother. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it still, <laughs> my copy of National Geographic was thinner than everyone else's copy. But I got to keep the, uh, the articles about space and rocks and sharks and snakes, and I was mostly interested in those things anyway. But the point is that the National Geographic approach was that there's this other that we will find interesting and curious, but it's a folk way and a, and a life way, very distant from our own and not a threat. That's the way they look at Christianity now, unless they see Christianity as a threat. 
And, and where they see Christianity as a threat is where Christianity threatens to have some lingering or assertive influence on the formation of policy and law and um, influence on the larger culture, say, over the curriculum to be taught in schools. At, at that point, all of a sudden, Christianity emerges, but the progressives see the emergence of Christianity as a threat to the liberation of the entire civilization from those outdated theological claims. So that's why we have the crisis in this country over everything from morality to law and the courts. Uh, and you just look at the speed of this and you recognize that when Crawford Gribben writes about the fact that in Ireland, if current trends in public opinion continue, the public declaration of Christianity can become nothing less than a crime. And, and that literally so, given the direction of much European law, and particularly the law in Ireland, we think it couldn't happen here in the United States. After all, we have the First Amendment, protections of free speech, and protections of religious liberty, but those are only so good as the citizens of this country make them good. We are facing a unique difficulty as Christians. We're speaking here as Christians. We're speaking as those particularly, most of whom are training for the pastorate, all of whom are training for Christian service and deployment in the name of Christ. And the reality is that the landscape into which you are now called is one in which you will look increasingly odd and increasingly threatening. Insofar as you are genuinely Christian, you will be seen as increasingly eccentric and increasingly threatening, dangerous to the powers that be. This is the predicament of a post-Christian condition, because I'm speaking about the predicament of the Christian and the predicament of the Christian church. This institution was not established in a post-Christian era. Southern Seminary was certainly not established in a post-Christian era. The Southern Baptist Convention was not established in a post-Christian era. The Southern Baptist Convention was granted its original charter with all kinds of recognitions and immunities from the state of Georgia in the year 1845. That was an entire civilization ago. You look at Southern Seminary, you look at that campus designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, the buildings by James Gamble Rogers, you look at the investment of a denomination in a school like that, you come here to Kansas City and you see the expansion of a denomination into the West. The history of how this seminary ended up in Kansas City is itself a fascinating chapter in Southern Baptist history. And, and here it is, and how it has been blessed and, and how it has been expanded and how its work has been magnified just over the course of the last decade. But this wasn't done, this wasn't begun, this project wasn't established in a post-Christian age, but you now find yourselves in a post-Christian predicament. Southern Baptists are accustomed to living in a world that plays largely by Christian rules, that has respect for Christian morality, that has an understanding of truth, an, under, an understanding of right and wrong, an understanding of the basic meaning and conception of life that is at least not inconsistent with biblical Christianity. But we're now living in a predicament 
in which that is no longer true. And, and Southern Baptists for a long time, and for that matter, Americans for a long time, looking at the European pattern, believed that there was this inflexible rule of American exceptionalism. Yeah, that's the way it happens in Europe. Yes, what would you expect from Sweden? They're Swedes. Uh, you know, just, just, just look at, at Europe. Southern Europe, the, the American exceptionalists would say, Southern Europe was Christianized in one sense, Northern Europe in another sense, and with the advent of industrialization and, and the modern intellectual liberation from Christianity and the moral revolutions, how would you expect that anything other than that could happen? And the exceptionalist said, but yes, here in the United States, look at church going. Look at church going rates. You know, upwards of 75 and 80 percent even towards the end of the 20th century. Now, those of us who actually go to church wonder how those statistics were ever put together. But nonetheless, you look at the massive churches and the influence of, of institutional Christianity in the United States, and in particular in the South, and you can see why the Southern Baptist Convention and American evangelicals could at least imagine that there are so many of us that the cultural influence would remain. And there are regions where cultural protections can be taken for granted. But what Southern Baptists lacked was an understanding of how social change happens and how the acceleration of social change basically extinguishes the differences of place, or at least minimizes the relative advantages or disadvantages of place, which is to say that if you live in the state of Georgia, you increasingly live in the city of Atlanta. Even if you live 100 miles out of Atlanta, you are still in Atlanta because the entire reference of the society is largely to Atlanta, and Atlanta is Los Angeles. I'm a Floridian by birth with a long pedigree in the state of Florida. And when I grew up, Florida was a very different state than it is now. It had a population of about 4 million, now it's over 20 million, and that is not by human reproduction. That's because Florida is not necessarily the most fertile place, but it has drawn an awful lot of people have been moving to Florida. And as they've been moving to Florida, they have brought their worldviews with them from New Jersey and Michigan and other pagan lands. They have invaded... <laughs> They have invaded the South in such a way that you can see materially how, how things are just changing. And even, by the way, politically, the conservatism, it's not the same conservatism. It's, it's, it's rooted, or the liberalism, not the same liberalism. It's rooted in something very, very different. One of the most interesting things, and, and uh, there's a lot of work being done on this. One of the most interesting works, by the way, is by Crawford Gribben, the guy that wrote on Ireland. He also wrote a fascinating book on Idaho. I flew out of Los Angeles to get here yesterday. The Los Angeles Times yesterday had a major story in print, and uh, I'll be talking about it on the briefing. It's just, too good to, it's just too good to miss. And it is about the new trend in real estate in Idaho, which is ideological real estate. Basically, conservatives leave California and move to Idaho. Entire communities now being built as the new conservative Zion for the refugees from Portland and Vancouver and, and California. And uh, you look at that and you recognize, okay, but the redoubt in Idaho can only last so long because if enough, trust, take it from a Floridian, if enough Californians move to Idaho, you become California with mountains. 
Actually, California does have mountains. With Idaho mountains. You just transplant. This is the problem in Texas. If you live in Austin and the people are moving there from, from Silicon Valley, guess what? Politically, you're Silicon Valley. The Southern Baptist Convention, our, our Southern evangelical Protestantism is facing a society that is no longer going to look to us, to our schools, to our convention, and to our churches the way we have counted on for more than a century and a half. So, you're going to face a challenge. At my stage in life, I see it. You're going to live it the rest of your lives. I'm a grandfather. That changes everything. I now look at my precious little grandchildren, and I think, you're going to live up, you're going to grow up, you're going to be living in a society that is markedly different, not only from the society I once knew, but from the society I know now. I don't think any of us believe it's going to be more hospitable to biblical Christianity. It presents a real challenge to the Christian church, an enormous challenge. There aren't that many alternatives. Very quickly, I just want to suggest a couple. Actually, it's more than two. Just hang with me. I want to discuss just a few strategies. So, just to cut things down, let me make it seven. <laughs> Number one is withdrawal. There are those who are going to say, let's just withdraw from society. you familiar with the Benedict Option with Rod Dreher, who's a dear friend. And uh, it came up in a conversation even earlier this morning, and I said, you really don't believe in a Benedict Option if your book is published by a major publisher. But it's an important argument, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a useful argument. There is a sense in which we do seek to withdraw from at least some parts of this toxic culture, but total withdrawal is incompatible. It might be compatible with a church like Eastern Orthodoxy that can basically just reside by geographic des designation. We're conversionists. Withdrawal doesn't work. It's not faithful to the gospel. The second option is surrender. Just discard doctrine and the cognitive claims of Christianity, get over the embarrassment of historic Christian morality, and surrender to the spirit of the age. Now, that is the argument for cultural Christianity, for cultural Protestantism. That was the argument of the, the architects of theological liberalism. The, the way for Christianity to survive is for Christianity to find a way to provide meaning and emotional expressivism, and uh, for that matter, liturgy, candles, and architecture to a society that simply doesn't find biblical Christianity tenable. The third would be negotiation. And th this is another liberal strategy. Negotiation is, okay, we're not going to move all the way that you demand, but we'll move about halfway. Now, one of the very interesting things, and, and this is one of the central issues in this book I'm writing, one of the interesting things to note is that the most famous theological liberals of the early 20th century, people like Harry Emerson Fosdick and, uh, and, and other people, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, for instance, even earlier in Germany, they made the argument that to save Christian morality, we would have to basically surrender Christian theology. You know, if liberals don't believe in the virgin birth, well, We'll redefine the virgin birth. We'll give up the virgin birth so long as we get marriage. How's that turned out? 
Because as it turns out, you give up Christian theology, guess what you also lose? Christian morality. This is why one of the things you notice is that the old theological liberals are now considered on the wrong side of history. Because if you're going to negotiate, then behind you, your children are going to negotiate further, and before you know it, you're one of them. It's also just unfaithful to Scripture, unfaithful to Christ, unfaithful to the gospel. For a second phase of negotiation. And this comes under the category you see in those on the evangelical left, whether they go by names like emergent or future church or declaring themselves identified by post-Christendom. This is the revisionist post-evangelical, ex-evangelical strategy of saying, look, evangelicalism, historic biblical Christianity, and all of its cognitive claims and all of its moral commands just doesn't work. So let's try to save something, and let's instead transform the gospel mandate into basically a cultural mandate. And again, that's reductionistic. I admit that, but I would argue it's also true. A fifth strategy is defiance. We're just going to defy. The, the problem is that that works in social media, but doesn't work on the ground. An awful lot of Christians are evidencing in social media a spirit of absolute defiance, and it can frankly be attractive at times. I'm just saying that evidently that doesn't transform the culture. And, and so here's what we have to watch. We have to, we have to watch defiance as a, as a category that is attitude. I'm going to argue that defiance is actually the rightful strategy if it is grounded in truth and gospel. And in this sense, the most basic defiance that we are called to is the defiance of getting married, that means a man and a woman, staying married, having babies, multiply and fill the earth, raising those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, building gospel churches, preaching the scripture to Christ's people, building them up in the holy faith, conforming them, that is the scripture, not you, conforming them to the image of Christ. That's defiance. We're also called to make public statements, that's true, but we better follow up those public statements with personal credibility. Sixth, retrenchment. Now, now you can see this perhaps most interestingly as you look to the Catholic world, where in retrenchment, you literally have people saying, let's just go back and speak Latin. Let's just go back and do this. Let's just try to turn back the clock. And by the way, this pope, who is the least papal of any pope in my lifetime. I just, it's like a kindergarten teacher has become pope. And, uh, you know, who am I to judge? What do I know? You're the pope. That is actually the sole purpose of your job. But nonetheless, nonetheless, in the Catholic Church, one of the responses you see is retrenchment. And, and the retrenchment is, we'll find refuge in the liturgy, we'll find refuge in the old Latin mass, we'll find refuge in, in the architecture, and just retrenchment. And, and look, there are those, if we're honest, among us, who might be happy if we could just go back to the 1970s or the 1950s. It's not going to happen. 
Even if it did happen, it wouldn't work. And besides that, if we're biblically honest, there are aspects of American society and of American church life in the 1970s and the 1950s that we now find incompatible with Christianity. Just to take the issue of, uh, of, of race and civil rights. There is no golden era to which we can return. For one thing, we go back to that basic Christian understanding of history, which is past, present, and future. Our faith is grounded in what Francis Schaeffer called space and time and history. True truth. That Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. That he did live a sinless life that he did die for our sins on the cross, that he was bodily raised from the dead, that he did ascend into heaven. But it is based in the fact that he is coming physically, gloriously, to return and to rule with his church. And that there is coming a new heaven and a new earth, as well as a judgment. This means that Christians alone are those who don't have full satisfaction in this life and don't expect it. The seventh option is recovery. And, and this recovery means the church just coming to its senses and preaching the word and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and telling people about Jesus and telling children how to sing gospel songs and getting teenagers in a room and infusing as much gospel and scripture into them as we can. Most importantly, training parents, I mean, encouraging young people for the goal of marriage, and then training parents to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Planting gospel churches. Gospel churches that may never have the edifices and may never have the assets and the resources and the programming. The Southern Baptists in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s grew to think was just the very essence of church. It turns out the essence of church is the community of the redeemed, the new covenant people of God, covenanting together in a congregation to celebrate the means of grace, the preaching of the Word of God, and to welcome new believers by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's much more to be said, but I don't want to leave you thinking that we're doomed. We're not, because Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's the amazing thing. As you look back through church history, and you look back through church history as a believer, here's what you see. In every generation, God has called His people to be faithful. And by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of the Word of God, and by the, the taking of the gospel to the ends of the earth, God always gives His people exactly what we need for faithfulness in a moment. Remember this. He didn't give Israel a storehouse of manna. He gave Israel direction and protection and manna every morning. How can we pray expecting that God would give us everything we need now? Our dependence on Him is knowing that He will give us everything we need for faithfulness day by day, as long as we live, as long as the Southern Baptist Convention shall be faithful until Jesus comes. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful That you said, as Peter confessed Christ, and as Christ responded, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
So dear sweet Jesus, thank you for establishing the church upon the rock. And in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we claim all the promises and accept the commission to live faithfully in the gospel, by the gospel, in the Spirit, until Christ comes. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Amen.